You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about the business and culture of book selling in the 21st century. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Before we begin, if you like what we're doing, there are a couple of ways to help us out. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also support the show via Patreon. Finally, I'm excited to announce a cool partnership with Libro.fm. Libro.fm is the first audiobook company to directly support independent bookstores. They make it easy for you to listen to more audiobooks at a great price, all while knowing you're helping your community thrive. Learn how to get your first month for 99 cents at bookstories.show. This week's show is with Allison Hill, CEO of Roman's Books and Book Soup in Pasadena and West Hollywood, respectively. We sat down in the studio and discussed her path to heading up one of the oldest and largest indie book businesses in the country. She had amazing insights on the industry and was a delight to talk to. I even discovered that we're neighbors. How cool is that? Here's our chat. Hi, I'm Allison Hill, CEO and president of Roman's Bookstore in Pasadena and Book Soup in West Hollywood. Allison, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Romans goes way back. Way I, back. I, I thought it went. I thought it was like a 1900s thing, but I, I just in doing the research for this interview, it goes back to 1894. 1894. Can you imagine? We're coming up on our 125th anniversary. I can't. I know. I try to get my head around what that must have been like to stand in the middle of Pasadena with fewer people than go to a Dodgers game and have a dream of a bookstore that he couldn't have imagined would still be here. What can you tell me about A.C. Roman? Oh, so Adam Clark Roman is a really, really interesting figure. Here's this guy who worked on the railroads in Illinois and was a photographer and a bibliophile and kind of a Renaissance man. And Ansel Adams looked up to him. Yeah, isn't amazing. that amazing? Yeah. Ansel Adams called him one of his inspirations. And if you've seen some of his photography, which the Huntington Museum in Pasadena has a large collection and the Southwest Museum, then you can see the similarities in their landscapes and their vision of that part of the country. But Adam Clark fell in love uh, with a woman named Esther. And sadly, Esther contracted tuberculosis. And like so many people of that day who ran into challenges like that, they came west for the weather to find dry, warm weather and Even ended up then. in Pasadena. Yeah, they exactly, right? They wow. knew back then. Word, word got back. Uh, exactly. Pony Express. Exactly. So he ends up in Pasadena, and uh, the story gets sadder because Esther passed away. And so here's this guy who's from Illinois in what is, you know, a little bit of wild, wild west, and he has to decide whether he's going to stay or go back home. And he doubles down, and he sells his beloved book collection to raise the capital to open a bookstore. Wow. The location that you're in now, did he start on the same street? So Romans has always been on Colorado Boulevard, but it did start further down in what is now Old Town. I believe there's a Jamba Juice in the location where we originally started. Of course, it's going to be that or Anthropology or Starbucks. Uh, There's a Jamba Juice there now, and then the store moved further down. It's maybe a mile down the road into the location we're in now in the 50s, and then in the 80s, doubled the size of the main store. And then there's a branch store 15 minutes from the main store, and then we have two pop-up 
stores at LAX. We end up at the branch one often because it's close to a Whole Foods and a Home Goods and a couple of other <laughs> places. Yes, that, so is, that is the satellite a, it suburban to be the more convenient shopping. One for us. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, are you related to the Romans? No, I, okay. I. It is a family business, but it is not my family. Okay. What is your background? So, uh, just to tell you a little bit about the the family thread from Mr. Roman. So Mr. Roman left the store to longtime employees, and one of those employees was a Sheldon, and that's the family through line. So the family that owns Romans today is the Sheldon family, and that gentleman was Mr. Sheldon's great uncle. Gotcha. And you are unrelated to the Sheldons am, as well. I am not a Sheldon. I am not a Roman. Okay. Uh, I have but the you great very, honor of running have, their family business. Exactly. You're carrying the torch. So what is your background? How do you enter? Like, Have you always been involved in the, the book industry? Or can you tell us a little bit about where you come from and how you aligned with the Romans brand? Yes. Yeah, so in some ways, I have the typical bookseller origin story of starting as a kid, a book nerd, you know, falling asleep with piles of books all around you and spending every weekend in the library and dreaming of a future writing books or publishing books or editing books, not really even realizing, I don't think that there was such a thing as a job in book selling itself. And I graduated from college with a degree in English and Peace and Justice Studies, which my parents will tell you they were pretty convinced was a path to unemployment, but turns out to be the perfect, perfect beginnings to a a foundation for independent book selling. And I was lucky enough to start in publishing. I worked for Simon & Schuster in the textbook division in Boston, worked there for a few years. And when I left publishing to kind of try something new, I thought, well, I'll get a job at a bookstore. I'll get a part-time job at a bookstore. I'll see how it goes. I love books. We'll see what happens next. And it was absolutely love at first sight. The first day on the job, I couldn't believe there was, Where was such it? a job. So Where this was, was Boston. Okay. I worked for Waterstones. Okay. And I started They're on off, the list. They're on the list? Yeah. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Yeah, a great company. And I started at Faneuil Hall in Boston. So this historic landmark location, this beautiful store. And here I am talking to people about my favorite thing in the world and having those amazing moments where you realize that you can put the right book in someone's hand at right. the right moment and change their life. And I was hooked. And I worked for Waterstones for several years in Boston, moving around their different stores, ended up at their flagship store as assistant general manager, made a big change right as Waterstones was making a big change. W.H. Smith was moving to Atlanta, and they were starting to close the Waterstone street stores in the United States. Moved to Los Angeles, thought, well, that was kind of an accidental career. Let me, let me regroup and think about what I really want to do. And I went into Book Soup to buy a book, And I walked by a table, and there was a book that had come out in paperback that I didn't know had already come out in paperback, and I couldn't believe I had missed the transition from hardcover to paperback. And when they came over to ask me if I needed help, I said, yes, I need an application. I just I couldn't imagine being away from it for a moment. I realized wow. just how deep my love of book selling was, and I was lucky enough to get a part-time job at Book Soup in West Hollywood, you know, the bookseller to the great and infamous. And within a few months, I lucked out again, their general manager left, and I was in the right place at the right time Timing. and became their general manager. So I was there for seven years, worked for the owner, Glenn Goldman, and then after seven years, got a call from Romans and had this another great opportunity to move out to 
you know, a Pasadena store that had a great reputation and was doing great things and just had a lot of more opportunity for me in terms of growth yeah, than yeah. where I was at. And then, you know, life is funny. Fast forward another seven years and I go back and buy Book Soup for Romans. That was just what I was going to ask you. Is that, yeah. that was the thread. Yeah. The, the acquisition of Book Soup happened on your watch. Yes. Yeah. So that, that was my labor of love for a year along with a couple other really dedicated people who didn't want to see that store close. When uh, Glenn passed away, the store was put up for sale and they didn't get offers initially and we were the people who came to the table to put a deal together and keep the store alive so it's such a magical place that it makes me really really happy that it lives on and it speaks to you know everybody's commitment to that endeavor that it's still alive and well was the um the airport deal is that something that you did as well Yeah, so the airport deal is interesting. So again, we're going back full circle, right? My Waterstones days, back when I was at Waterstones, I worked with a woman named Sarah Hinckley, who went on and made that move to Atlanta and moved up the ladder at W.H. Smith. She now works for Hudson, which is the bookseller that handles a lot of the bookstores in airports that everybody knows. And Sarah and I put the Book Soup deal together several years ago to do a licensing agreement and have two Book Soup stores at LAX. Very cool. Yeah. That's so cool. It's, 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 these backstories are the most interesting thing about this whole That's thing. That's the thing, right? And yeah. I think the book industry is so interesting because things do kind of circle back around and it's a really small community. I mean, we all know each other. I was thinking about that coming to see you, how jealous I am that you've been hanging out with my favorite people on this podcast. Yeah. You've been hanging out, you know, with Lynn Vallejos from Tattered Cover and Mitchell Kaplan from Books and Books and Steve Raku from Book People. And these are all people I've known for years, you yeah. know, who are friends, who are mentors. And it's a small community. It and is. It is. And everybody knows everybody. Yeah. And in the, in the small time that I've spent in it, uh, like we talked off the mics about me looking into opening a store. Right. I reached out to a bunch of different people and everybody was, they, I was, would email and they would just call me. Yes. There would be, it was, do you know what I'm talking about? It oh. wasn't like a, oh yeah, check in with me. It was like an instantaneous thing, maybe the next day or so. So it, it is a very cool and special community. It really is. And the people are so open and so supportive and really, it's a delicate ecosystem. And I think we all realize that and that it requires us all supporting one another for us to all thrive. Right. Since you've been in charge or at the helm, what new changes or innovations have you applied? Mm, since I've become the CEO of Romans, how have I changed it? I asked a polite way of basically like, how did you shake things up? So there have been so many things that have changed during my time there. The big changes have been things like the acquisition of Book Soup and the airport stores. We've completely rethought our gift offerings, which in the book industry is referred to as non-book. non-book. <laughs> um, I'm and, all familiar with right? the jargon now. The yeah. jargon, the yeah. non-book, which I think is funny that we call what, it that. What do you think about non-book sales? Are you, are you, a, are you I'm a, pro- a big fan. Fan. You're a big fan. I'm a big fan. I did not start out a big fan, but... What changed you? Besides the obvious. Survival. Survival. Yeah. Um, and you know what? It ends up being a lot of fun. I think as you start to see it as a as a fun endeavor to discover these complementary products that you can bring into your store that enrich your customers' lives, I think about Romans over... Over the holidays is my favorite time at Romans because we become this little town center and everybody comes through. I mean, in the course of a weekend, I'll see my eye doctor, I'll see my kid's teacher. You know, everybody comes through and everybody's there to do their holiday shopping and they've returned to this special place that they love and it's part of their tradition, but they're there to get all their shopping done. So there's a practicality to it too. And us offering the non-book 
creates this full experience for them where they have that added value that's really meaningful to them in their daily lives where they don't have a lot of time. How do you curate non-book stuff? Do you go to like independent creators or what's your thought process on? Because I know you, I know Romans is, is huge. You're a generalist bookstore. So curation is kind of with books is not necessarily top of mind because you're going to have some, you're going to have everything. But with respect to non-books, you can be a little bit more creative. Yeah, you're right about that. We are, Romans is a generalist bookstore. We carry 85,000 titles. So there is less curation in the overall breadth of what we're carrying. It's really curation that you'll see in the displays and the merchandising. Whereas on the non-book side, it's very curated, obviously. And that has been a big change since I took over in that we've built a whole team of gift buyers. There are three women and interestingly, they're each at different stages of their lives, so they have very different perspectives that they're bringing to the table. One of them, my head gift buyer, grew up at Romans. We were her first job. She's now an adult with a family, and she's grown into this position. Another of the buyers came from Portrait of a Bookstore. I don't know if you ever went there in Studio City. It was a great independent that closed, sadly, and we were the beneficiary of their buyer from there. Uh, and then a third who's another person who's grown up in the company. So that gift buying team is really in charge of curating. And they go to the gift shows. They go to Vegas. They go to New York. They go to L.A. They go to other stores. They, you know, troll Pinterest. They do all kinds of things to stay on top of trends and what people are looking for and things that they think are interesting and unique and that our customers are going to want. That's one of the best parts about the retail experience is this... Um Discovery, what's the name of the store? Oh, Home Goods. We just we just mentioned it. Oh, right. They are so successful because every time you go there, it's what they call a treasure chest. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? And bookstores, in a way, are are that as well. Like you never know, especially the ones that kind of line up their inventory in a thoughtful manner. Like there's, we, I talked to Stories in Echo Park. Yes, I love and them. They they mix new with used, and they mix they like they go from if you're looking in a fiction section, you might see a nonfiction book next to something, and it's not because someone shoved it there. It's because there's a nexus. That's exactly it. Do you yeah. Know what I, mean? I mean, that's the most fun we have is on displays and juxtaposing things that people wouldn't find on their own and finding little treasures that you're pulling out to put in front of people and then watching it. You know, I mean, just watching people come and discover things are the great moments of joy in retail and book selling. Sure. So, since you've been CEO, what's been a nagging pain point in the business for you? something that you want to change or something that you that's on your list. This is this is where I got into trouble with all my friends who you've been interviewing. <laughs> Great. This moment just came. This early on. Huh? This, is an okay. equal, this, is an, right. this is an equal playing I'm ready. field. Yeah. Okay. I'm ready. You guys listening? I'm ready. <laughs> um, so I one of the things that I think the industry should be looking at is the way we print prices on books. I, I think we're the one of the only, if not the only, place in the retail sphere that still prints the price on the product, which limits the retailer. So if my expenses go up, I have no control over increasing my prices. And like everyone, I don't necessarily want the prices of books to keep going up. But I do want to be able to ensure that bookstores stay in business. And I think one of the ways we do that is by removing the prices from books so that bookstores have more flexibility in their pricing and 
can ensure that they can keep up with their expenses. Would that apply for online sales as well then? Like it would basically be a situation where the price that you see on Amazon or another online seller is the price that they're putting out as opposed to the discount from list? I'm sorry, who are you talking about? I'm not I'm not familiar with this this thing you mentioned. <laughs> the, the, the A word. <laughs> the A word, um, the evil empire. Because um, I do have some questions later on that I want to ask you about, like just kind of that whole dynamic of because I'm I'm totally on your side and it, it doesn't make any sense to me it, just from a business standpoint, why not that it's not even a question of transparency so much as it's about like look at how other people in other industries in retail conduct themselves. And it, it's the only other industry that I can see a parallel is the car car business kind of where mm-hmm. the price of the car is you have a sticker price you have a sticker price but not so much on anything else you know and and I, and it's it's a nagging question i ask and there's never really been a great answer but i just i still want to hear it i i want you to say what you want to say because it should be repeated over and over again until somebody does something about it you know yeah i mean to be honest i there are colleagues of mine who differ with me on this point and i think there it is an, it's an unknown and i think there is some change is scary change is scary and i also think there's some fear about what the response would be from online booksellers, we'll call them, um, and how they how that might get manipulated in a way that could potentially hurt us. I don't see the downside of it. I think that customers who shop with me shop with me because they see the value in what they're getting from me. They know, I mean, it is transparent, right? They right. know they can buy what I sell cheaper somewhere Absolutely. else. So they're clearly, have, they've clearly already made that decision to shop with us. So their goal is that we stay in business and we share that goal, and this would be a means to that end. What's Roman's gives back? When you asked about Adam Clark Roman, and I mentioned what an interesting man he was, one of the things that he is known for is the fact that he was very focused on philanthropy and community, and he did all this great work in Pasadena supporting the Pasadena Public Library. That's where he donated his book collection when he passed away. He helped launch the Southwest Museum. He helped restore missions. I mean, there's even a story of him loaning money to a competitor who wanted to start a bookstore. I mean, he was just a really interesting man who really believed in community, so that's such a huge part of the legacy that we try to honor today. And one of the pieces of that is Romans Gives Back, which is a program that was developed, I think it's been almost 20 years now, it predates me. And it was launched to set up a a system of donating and giving back to the community that is really spearheaded by customers. They get to choose from a list of 24 nonprofits in the area that they want a percentage of their sale donated back to. So it's no cost to the customer, but the company's made a commitment to donating that money to these organizations. And to date, we've given almost $700,000. That's amazing. Yeah, I it's saw really, that. and people get to feel good about being part of something like that. And it, I think for it's one of the reasons I went to Romans in the first place. Yeah. I felt like a company that made that kind of commitment was a company I wanted to work for. Phenomenal. Given how small the margins are in the business and to still be right. able to like give that. When I read that for the first time, I was thinking of like Warby Parker, the company yes. when you buy a pair of glasses, they, they get a pair. You guys were doing this 20 years ago, like an equivalent yeah. type of idea. It's so. a huge part of what Romans is about. And it's interesting right now we're having this company-wide discussion about our core values. We did this several years ago and we're revisiting it now to update it and just have a big dialogue around it. And it comes up again and again that we all 
believe the company has this core value and we also want it to have this core value of being civically minded, being a community bookstore, continuing this legacy that Mr. Roman started with a philanthropic mindset and kind of a, a social consciousness to what we do, which is kind of inherent in being in the bookstore business, I'm sure, as you've discovered, mm-hmm. as you've talked to people, but where are the ways that we can really explore that and expand that? So we've done things that are done at a lot of stores in terms of toy drives and book drives, but we've also tried to do other things, like we launched this nonpartisan series after this last presidential election called Democracy Wise, where we brought in panels of people to talk about different subjects related to American politics and the democratic process. And we feel like even something like that really speaks to this higher mission that we feel is part of what we should be doing as an independent bookstore. And it makes my job more meaningful. It makes it more meaningful to everybody who touches what we do. You said the word community. Um, your events program is robust and some of the best around, especially in, in, in Southern California. Like, Thank you. You guys get everybody. Um, who orchestrates that? Talk about the process, if you can, okay. a little bit. Well, we do almost 1,000 events a year at the two different, three different stores. Um, and I have to give a shout out to my promotional director, Jennifer Ramos, who has been the promotional director at Romans now for 13 years. And years ago, we worked at Book Soup. She was my promotional director there and had left the business for a while, and I roped her back in. But Let me shadow her for a day, okay? Oh, my gosh. What's her, what does she do? I'll give you an example. Okay. So Sunday, we hosted Chuck Palahniuk of Fight Club fame, and he's such a great author, and he's so great about connecting with his readers. He really wants to spend time with each and every one of them, which means that his event went from 10.15 a.m. on Sunday to 9.45 on Sunday night. And Jen was probably at the store by 7, checking her email, going through grids with publishers, which is when they send us information about authors who will be touring in the area, and she responds and checks off the authors who were interested in hosting. She then would have gone around the store to check in with all the staff to make sure they knew what was going on for this event. She oversaw the event, running it. Her team all came in for the day and helped, you know, hand him books and get him water and talk to people in line and all of that. But simultaneously, she would step away and, you know, check on our next newsletter and return calls from Book Soup, who also had an event that day and is working on training our new social media person and just a whole list of tasks that she's responsible for and that keeps that event series alive and well. Are there are there more potential guests than there are space for events? Like, are you... Oh, yes. So, okay. So you have to pick and choose a little yes, bit. Yes. So that, going back to your question about curating, I mean, there's a certain amount of curation going on in... With the event planning and yeah, programming. Yeah. And there's people we have to turn down simply because we don't have the time or because we already have somebody booked. And there are definitely a lot of authors who are still touring LA and coming to town and happy to do events at stores and... Um, yeah, lots of opportunity there. And then capacity for people that can't make it or if you're at capacity, do you guys broadcast these events? Do you, do you, we, sh- are you, th- is that something that you're thinking about? to the first floor of the building. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> okay. We broadcast them so that the people who didn't get upstairs can hear. But we've talked about it. We've talked about doing podcasts. We've talked about doing live streams. We've looked at different things. I mean, part of the idea of these events is to get 
people, people physically in the, the store. Right. You know, it's right. it's to get them to buy the books, but also to get them in the store. And we hear this a lot. The Chuck Palahniuk event on Sunday, there were people there who had never been there before, and that's part of the point because yeah. those people once they've once we've got them they'll come back we know that sure. you know once they've discovered us they will return so that's a big goal that's related to this one dynamic you could consider for people that can't make it but that want to find a way to support you putting out that content or sharing it with a broader audience and then tying it somehow to um, and I, I, I'm not going to be crediting myself for this idea mm-hmm. I heard it from somebody else I actually don't remember who it'll probably come out on one of the episodes but tying it to a signed copy of the book like mm-hmm. you know we're putting this out there. It's not necessarily going to, you know, bring Niagara Falls worth of revenue, but it's a way for you to connect with a broader audience. And I know for a fact that Politics and Prose does a mm. podcast, and it's pretty successful. That's it's, a great example. It's a way They're to great. be. It's a way to be top of mind more yeah. than anything else. Yeah, but that's a that's a great idea. I, I hearing think, the idea of tying it to yeah. a signed copy. Yeah, you know, uh, I feel like there's a population of people that would totally yeah. support that. Well, but and I think you're someone right. Someone has to try the pilot. Right. Exactly. Well, I would be willing to try. I'm a big believer in being the pilot program. And I think you're right. It might not be this huge revenue stream, but you know, the joke in the book business is how do you make a small fortune in the book business? Start with a large fortune. Yeah. So yeah. in other words, every little bit, we'll take it. Yeah. The events, the programming by and large is the most special thing about bookstores to me because it just keeps this, it's like a river of, of, oh, of, yeah. of ideas and yeah. a thought leadership yeah. and kind of a community gathering spaces. If you live in a neighborhood uh, long enough, you'll end up inevitably going to town hall meetings mm-hmm. that are like just awful, like angry places. But, oh, yeah. but bookstores have, you guys have mastered this sort of like cool, calm vibe, you know, yeah. that, that, that town halls could learn from. I don't well, know. it's interesting because you think about modern day life and there aren't a lot of opportunities for people to come together with like-minded others. Yes. I mean, I'm originally from Texas and my family's from this small town and it used to be in that setting that it would be a church or I think just in general, you know, churches and synagogues had kind of served that role for people. And now I think there aren't as many places that a community really feels tethered to and like they can come together and share these experiences and bookstores I think are offering that. Right now at Romans, has anything been selling really well that's kind of surprising you? (laughs) Well, the Fire and Fury is still still moving, still still surprising us. Okay, even though he, yeah, even though he kind of pressed it out a little too much. Yeah, he did. He did press it out quite a bit. Uh, We were a little bit nervous about that. That always makes us nervous. It's one of the shocking things about they give you so much of the book in many instances. Like why even before I was finished with it, he had already told me everything. Like I know, you know, we talk about this all the time. I mean, this is the this is the challenge of being a book buyer. Uh, a bookstore. In like the information it, now, oh, instant it, gratification exactly. media. Exactly. And, you know, book buying is already an art and a science and then a whole lot of gambling. It, it's, they you don't know, make it any easier. They don't make it any easier. <laughs> and so we sit there and we talk about what's the press that's coming up, how much press. And in the, in the case of that book, we had to obviously do the initial buy, but then everybody was chasing this book and how many more do you buy and are you going to overbuy? And then it sun, suddenly runs out of steam because everybody already saw everything there was to see. Right. And then you're standing with a bunch of books. So it's really, really challenging. Are young people buying it? <laughs> Honestly, Across the board? I have never, I mean, I've been in the business 25 years. I've never seen a book sell like that. Wow. 
and it is across the board. That's a bold statement. I know. It's the. It's I the, know, it's right? The, it's I, I mean, fire, it, literally, right. fire and fury is taking place <laughs> yes. for people on the shelves exactly. to grab the book. Exactly. That's amazing. Um, wow. So I want to get your take on this. Um, you know, it's been it gets asked every every time, but I, I just like to hear because I think it's really important. Um, what's your take on why and how? more bookstores are opening despite the opposite narrative and perception in the media? What a great question. I get a lot of calls from people who want to open bookstores, and I get a lot of calls, a lot of calls from developers who think they want a bookstore. They want to build a building and put a bookstore in it. Yes, and they... are. They recognize the value of that. They are excited about it. And then I talk to them about the financials of a bookstore and what a viable rent is, and they're less excited. Talking to individuals about why they want open bookstores, I, I think it's obvious why someone has the dream, right? right? I mean, it's such a, it's, if you have a passion for books, I mean, I have a dream job. I get to spend every single day in a bookstore. Have you read the storied life of A.J. Fickrey? Yes. Yeah, that's, yes. That, that sums Exa- it up. Right? Yeah, exactly. 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 So I totally get why. And I think there's also that fascination of wanting to do things differently, you know, having the experience of being in bookstores all over the country for years and thinking, well, this is what I would do. And um, having really interesting ideas they want to play out in the real world. And I think people get excited. And I think there have been a lot of really interesting, great bookstores open in recent years that have come from that place. People have come from that thinking. Communities want them to exist. I think that's the underlying reason. But it's it's funny that you mentioned people call you about it. I talked to Green Apple Books. Oh, yeah. And somebody, like ex-Facebook employees or have accumulated some resources are, are leaving that digital life to go analog and open mm. open these hybrid stores. Exactly, yeah. Bookstore yeah. slash T, bookstore yeah. slash whatever. I say go for it. I think so, too. I mean, I'm a big believer in people should follow those kinds of dreams we had this yeah. conversation off mic about yeah. your path. And I think that these are the things you have to try. And if you build it, then hopefully they come. I think it's absolutely true that communities want bookstores. And I think people want to live in a world where there are a lot of bookstores. You hear people talk about how sad they are that there are fewer bookstores. I think all of this is true. I think the reality check is that people have to remember that we vote for the communities we want to live in with our dollars. And we've all had the experience of a place that we really love suddenly being gone and thinking, oh, I loved that place. You know, I wish, I can't believe they went out of business. And then you have to check yourself and think, when was the last time I went there? When was the last time I spent money so there? True. And the story I always tell is Book Soup had a restaurant for years before I worked there way back when. And it was called Book Soup Bistro. And when I first got to Book Soup, the bistro had just closed. And for probably two or three years, we would get calls from people saying, hi, I'd like to make a reservation for lunch. And I would say, I'm so sorry, the bistro is actually closed. And they would say, oh my gosh, I can't believe they closed. I love that place. I eat there all the time. And I would have to say, no, you don't because we closed two years ago. Mm-hmm. So you don't eat there all the time. And maybe if you had, we might still be open. So true. And it's kind of a reality check for yeah. myself too. You know, I mean, I, I don't I don't say that from a self-righteous place. Like I have to check myself on that. There's a great, you said you live in Silver Lake. So do I. 
there's a great little shop called Clover in yeah. Silver Lake. Yeah. And I watched when the person who worked there took over the star, store and owned it. And I try to drop in there periodically to buy a little gift if I need something just to ensure that she stays in business because she's a great curator. It's a great store. I love her story that she took over the store. And I want the neighborhood I live in to have little places like that. But I have to take responsibility for that. My and wife goes there to get birthday cards. Oh, but she does? I keep telling her, that's not enough. <laughs> it's gonna, right. Yeah, you got to you know, do more. Gonna, you got to buy gonna, jeans. They're going to put another shoe store. You know? <laughs> exactly. I don't understand how shoe junction works, but it, it's working. Or what is it called? Soul Junction. Soul Junction, I, yes. I don't get it. <laughs> I, I have not been in there. I had thought about that spot actually for the bookstore that I was telling you yeah. about. It wasn't quite big enough, but I had been talking to the landlord and then it didn't end up happening. And I'm like, ah, you know, I wonder what's going to, what they're going to put there. And they put a shoe Another store shoe there. Store. <laughs> that's, that's, that's so funny. Well, this is, this is the thing, you know, talking to developers too. I had a developer contact me not that long ago and it was a really great project. I was actually really excited about what they wanted to do. And I thought we might be a really good fit for them. And then I drove by and I realized that it was way too close to Skylight. Oh. And I thought, you know what? I would never do that to them. It is a delicate ecosystem. Yeah. And we all have to watch out for each other. And that would not be cool. And it's part of the thinking, I think, in this industry that we're all aware of that, you know, together we all rise. Is expansion something that's on your plate? or All the time thinking domination? about it. World domination is the ultimate goal. So we're taking small baby steps in that direction. Right now we're working on getting our wine license for the main Roman store. So knock on wood, we just uh, were in stage two with the city and getting building permits. And it's a really interesting process that I know zero about. Talk about a learning curve. Even the people that, if you go to building and safety, they don't even know what what they're talking about. It's so, really amazing. Yeah. I mean, they the the nobody knows anything. Person from the alcohol board came out to meet with me, and she said, "Show me the space." And I said, "Well." I haven't built it yet because I don't have a liquor license. And she said, well, I can't approve your liquor license <laughs> because you haven't built anything. Classic Catch-22. Exactly. Yeah. I thought, wow, this is going to be a really steep learning curve for me. Yeah, I went down the rabbit hole of trying to figure it out for that thing we talked about. And I ended up talking to some lady in the Inland Empire somewhere who was, had billed herself as like an expert on liquor license laws and like finagling the system. Mm. And I consulted with her on the phone for like 30 minutes. And she basically came up with like these permutations of what... What license I would qualify for, but I should try to get this license instead. Yes, exactly. And it's like, wait a minute, why? Why does this? Why is this even a thing? I know. <laughs> Tax me and then move on. Just tell me what to do yeah, and I'll do like, it. Let's go. Yeah, I know. It's pretty mind-boggling. So, but in terms of steps towards world domination, I, I think probably most of the booksellers are dancing as fast as they can, just like we are. And we're just constantly trying to come up with new things. So we're looking at other airport stores. We're looking at other pop-up opportunities. We just signed a partnership deal. Um, Alta Magazine is a sponsor now of our event series. We're going to do that for the next year. I don't know if you're familiar with them. William Hurst just launched this really cool quarterly magazine called uh, Alta. And they are pitching themselves as a New Yorker for the West Coast. Okay. So it's beautifully designed. What is and the New Yorker for the West Coast? The, well, you have to get out to magazines okay. so that you can see what that would look so they're like. Not, they're but not it's, taking over anybody's turf. This is no, a, I don't think so. I think this is it. That's I, a really great marketing. It's a great yeah, the pitch, right? The New Yorker right? of the West. The yeah. New Yorker of the West. And it's all culture and lifestyle and politics and beautifully designed and hopefully a really great partnership 
in terms of us attracting people to their magazine and then bringing people to our events and just figuring out what we can do with that. Like it's kind of this open field of, well, let's just partner with cool people who are like-minded and see what comes of it. And I think more and more we're looking for that type of opportunity just to be innovative and think about what the future could look like because I think it's going to look really, really different, but it's hard to know what exactly it will be. Yeah. And we just have to keep testing different things and seeing. You mentioned the airport again. Was there a decision between BookSoup or Romans? So initially when Sarah and I talked about doing airport stores and these licensing deals with Hudson, we did not own BookSoup yet. So the initial conversation was, hey, we want to do something. So we did two Romans pop-up stores because that's what they wanted to do. So they're Hudson stores with a Romans presence in them. And then by the time we owned BookSoup and that opportunity rolled around, it seemed obvious. And one of the stores for BookSoup is in the international terminal. And interestingly, BookSoup has a very international clientele. And we have a lot of customers in Japan and Australia, France, and New York. Music people. Music people, right? Yeah, music and fashion, which makes sense because the whole idea of Book Soup was to create this mecca for creative people. And even though we're a general bookstore, we specialize in art, music, film, fashion, and literature. So it made sense to put a place like Book Soup in the international terminal and then in the secondary terminal as well. You are the CEO of a big, major, independent bookstore do you think about Amazon? I want to know what you think of them. Like, do you think of them in the morning when you wake up? Or is it pretty much c'est la vie at this point? But you specifically. Right. Like, I think people would be surprised to hear how little they're on my mind. Mainly because I feel like we're in different games. We're not, ultimately, we're not competing against each other because we're in completely different games. I don't have discounted books at my stores and I can't compete with them on price as a result and they can't compete with me in terms of a community center and our event series and the level of customer service we offer and the interaction with booksellers in the moment and the sense of discovery as you're wandering through a store and running into people you know who care about the same things you do and I could go on and on and on. They can't compete with me on that. So it's completely different games. So in that sense, I don't think about them a lot. Obviously, they pop into my mind every once in a while. I mean, I know they're taking a bite out of my sales. I know I have really loyal customers who will also shop on Amazon. I mean, we've seen that really for the last, you know, 10, 15 years, this kind of hybrid shopper, whether it be digital and analog or Amazon and a brick and mortar store. I mean, that is the world that we live in more and more. And I get that. So with that in mind, I do think about them, but it's it's not a game that I'm trying to beat. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate on, on this one concept, and yeah. I want to get your take on it. Do you think that their existence has resulted in more net readers and, and by extension, more traffic to your stores? That's so interesting. No. <laughs> um, let me think. I As far as traffic to my stores and stimulating the reading culture, that, that's a bold statement on your part in a small room with a bookseller. <laughs> I, I'm, respect, um, respect. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not so black and white that I where, am not where? willing to consider that, but I have to say that in the end, the, the people I talk to, 
who are discovering books and keeping their reading life alive, the the tribe, if you will, seems to be really coming from the independent bookstore world. I mean, that's where I see those people spending their time, spending their money, flourishing, and they may dip in and out of the online world. I feel like the online world is more of a convenience and that's all it is. Right? I mean, yeah. and, and it is. And yeah. I get that, you know. But I'm not sure that that's doing so much for really expanding people's relationship with reading and stimulating the I, market. I'm coming at it from the standpoint of this whole uh, tech notion that information wants to be free. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when you put more of something in front of somebody, mm-hmm. you give access to a broader audience that otherwise wouldn't have had access to it before. Yep. And so the the optimist in me is thinking that maybe some of that is people using Amazon as sort of a catalog for what's mm-hmm. out there in the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then, hey, let's go down to the bookstore and f- get that title and then find other serendipitous things. Mm-hmm. Kind of like movie, kind of like the, the movies, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm guilty mm-hmm. of this. Like, I'll just rent it and I'll watch it on my TV, but I don't want movie theaters to go away. Right. But you always read about and hear about movies through other media mm-hmm. or through other ways. Mm-hmm. But then you inevitably force yourself to go to the movie theater. So I'm up approaching the question from that mindset. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. I mean, it's if giving, I was gonna... giving a bigger gene pool yes. of book readers. Yes. Um, I'm wondering if the fact that there's all this book culture mm-hmm. online, mm-hmm. if that doesn't somehow, if that create a residual benefit and you're saying it doesn't, mm-hmm. I'm not seeing it. Okay. You know, I, I understand what you're saying and I think it is an interesting point to contemplate, but what I'm seeing in terms of the groundswell is coming, you know, it's coming from, from the, the ground. Right? Like I'm cu- yeah. it's coming from the independence It's coming in that direction. And that's, you know, that's the world I live in. So clearly that's probably the lens I'm going to see it through. But if I was going to give credit to, as you're suggesting, getting more information out to people or making information accessible to people, I'd give more credit to Google for contributing to that, maybe. Um, What about the book reviews? You know, like Shelf Talkers is like a very analog thing, but now before you buy something, you can read like ton. Forget about Amazon. I'm talking Kirkus's online in general. Is that a net positive, net negative, or net neutral for you? In terms of book the- reviews are interesting, and I write book reviews, so I have to be careful here. I have a column with Los Angeles News Group, and I do write about books, and I'm very aware as I'm doing that of their role in bookstores and in the reading community. We definitely see in bookstores that reviews have a lot of power in from certain outlets at least and obviously shelf talkers as you said in the analog world are something that bookstores depend on greatly and that our customers depend on but as far as reviews in general I think it really depends it's interesting to me that it's it really depends on the outlet and the source. Now, that said, you've got the whole blogging community and their endorsement of books, which has definitely stimulated the book culture and, and the landscape of, of book selling. So there are these pockets, but reviews in general are not necessarily the be-all and end-all. Part of that is actually on 
on us because often reviews will come out before the books come out. And this is all this weird thing in the industry where this timing and syncing is all off. So customers come in and we don't have the book and they say, but I just read the review. And I say, yeah, it's not out for three weeks. And people don't understand why this would be. And and these are the kind of changes in the industry that we all need to get in the same room and sit down and say, okay, hash it out. let's just, just get this settled because this is not working for anybody. What are your thoughts on bundling? One price for a physical copy, a digital copy, and an audiobook. Bundling is really interesting to me, and I will admit that early on, I was probably someone who was a little resistant to the idea. It was hard to explain to customers. We beta tested some things for some companies, and people didn't seem that interested. And we were definitely, at the time at least, initially seeing people really choose the way they were going to receive their information, and they didn't necessarily want both. It's interesting because right now I'm in school, and I signed up for the print for my textbooks, and now I'm thinking, wow, I wish I also had it so I could listen to it on the plane or in my car, and realizing the opportunity there. So I've kind of come around as I've had my own experience around it, and I do think there are some opportunities there that the book business will start embracing on a larger scale in the coming years. So you think it's feasible? I think it's it, totally feasible. Do you see it happening in, in Not, this five, is, ten years? Mm, oh, yeah. In five, ten years, yeah. I think we're slow to change in the yeah. book industry as a where whole. Does, where, does this re- where does this change require? Where, where does it have to start? Is it the publisher? <laughs> I think it's that same room that we just yeah. put everybody in hashing yeah. it out. I mean, I think there's a lot that has to happen in dialogue between publishers and booksellers. And, and what... And us all sharing a long-term vision because it's really easy to get really myopic in terms of your own bottom line. And I think in terms of the survival and for all of us, we have to be thinking much more long-term. And that to me has to do with bundling, with taking prices off books, with syncing up review dates with when the books actually have their pub dates, a lot of different components of the business, even things like making sure that we're really responding to what customers are asking for. One of the things I talk a lot about is that we get so many requests for multicultural picture books for kids, very specific. And we're not really seeing that coming from publishers in the numbers that we need to satisfy our customers. So even things like that, I think, really looking at the demand and recognizing that we have information that is valuable to them and probably vice versa and understanding each other's businesses. But I think it is going to take a concerted effort for these different pieces of the industry to come together and imagine the future together. I talked to um, the Ripped Bodice, which is a romance-only bookstore in uh, Culver City. Yeah. I went to go see them in their store, and I got quite an education on the genre. Oh, I bet. They said the same thing, voiced the same concern about there being no diversity in the characters or the writers. Oh, in the romance world. Yeah, Mm. Uh, multicultural. There's a—people are coming in saying, do you have a book for this— demographic or that demographic, and and the answer is overwhelmingly no. Yes. Um, So it's interesting that you echoed that as well. What does Romans look like in five years? Romans in five years has a beautiful wine bar that is running smoothly and does not require my attention any longer. It has a beautiful wine bar and uh, a reimagined outdoor space that is inviting people into the store before they even 
enter through our doors. And I imagine that the... Will that be on the back parking lot? Is that... The Paseo, which is the side area between the movie theater okay. and the bookstore, is something that we're really focused on right now. And the, the movie theater is reimagining it as well. So it's really great synergy for us to come together and, and think about how we can extend our four walls in both cases. I also think within the store, I imagine it looking very different. We've started playing around a lot with the way we categorize books and the way we lay out sections instead of a traditional bay of, I don't know, let me think of an example, like the inspiration section. We've torn out what we think customers are really looking for and created a books that will change your life and just trying to peel off the layers so that people are having easier access to the things that are really driving them to these books rather than these preset generic categories that have been the standard over time. So I imagine that the way the stores are laid out is going to change and the way things are signed and categorized is going to change. What else? How many years ahead am I looking? Five years. Five years. I I imagine we'll have, I, I hope that we'll have more partnerships similar to these airport stores. I imagine these relationships with other kinds of institutions that have shared values. So I'm really fascinated with that right now in the book world is how we partner with other places. So Alton Magazine, Hudson Booksellers at the airport, the Joseph Beth Booksellers has these relationships with hospitals that I find fascinating. I think there's all these ways that... Hospitals would be really cool. Really cool, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, imagine if you've ever had to really be in the hospital with someone you loved yeah. and the gift shops there are often very disappointing. And depressing. And depressing, and yeah. it's already not a great situation no. if you're there to begin with. So I feel like there's so many opportunities like that, and I think bookstores can kind of start imagining themselves, again, outside their four walls and how we reach out and expand ourselves in ways that don't require traditional brick and mortar, tenant improvements, relationships with the landlord, you know, try to move away from the things that have historically, honestly, closed stores like high rent. Overhead hindrances. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, think beyond that and not necessarily all online because then I'm entering into Amazon's game. So I can continue to expand my game into these other arenas in some really interesting ways. So I hope in the next five years, we continue to explore those opportunities and discover some of that. And that as a result, our stores or what we mean by our stores looks really different. The ability to provide a convenience, you can justify a premium. The convenience and the curated experience. Going back to your buzzword, I mean, that's really what we have to offer and a certain expertise and, um, and some sort of relationship for people with something bigger. Yeah for sure. What are you reading at the moment? <laughs> what am I reading at the moment? So I have a really interesting list right now. You're going to be very impressed with my list. Please. So, impress away. Um, I'm reading a business law book for my business law class. What, you're in, you said you're in school. What are you studying? Yes. You- so I am in the UCLA Anderson Executive MBA program. Okay. So I recently took the first exam I'd taken in 26 years. <laughs> A three and a half hour statistic exam. If you had told my 18-year-old self, my my 22-year-old bookselling self, that I would in the future be taking a statistics exam in grad school, I would have laughed. <laughs> 
So yes, so I am doing that. And it's incredibly humbling and incredibly fascinating. And I love it. And I'm soaking it up and learning to think in different ways and hopefully bringing all of that back to the stores. That's the goal. And an amazing group of people that I go to school with who have gotten me out of my head and exposed me to these different things in the world that are completely beyond my insular little bookselling world. And it's just, it's fascinating. And so many good things are coming of it. So hopefully that all contributes to this five-year vision and the 10-year vision yet to be named. But right now I'm reading business law, which is really, really interesting and coming in handy way more than I would like it to. Um, I am reading the new Mark Haskell Smith because he's a friend and I'm a big fan and he has a new book coming out. Uh, A new book on artificial intelligence that someone just sent me the galley and I'm fascinated with that world right now and where the intersection is going to happen with my bookstores and how we learn to, I I don't imagine a a future where we're going to have robots instead of booksellers at all. But I do think our customers are going to live more and more in that world. And we need to be able to be um, able to speak that language and to understand what their experience is like and what their expectations are and how those may be changing because of that in terms of service and convenience and all those things. So artificial intelligence is really interesting to me right now. I'm also, for my own guilty pleasure, I am late to this party, but Sue Grafton, I'm starting at the beginning of the alphabet. I'm on B. It's awesome. I love it. It's a great uh, break between studying and work and all of that. And I I can see why she's been this popular crime (laughs) novelist all these years. I can't believe I'm just discovering her. And I love finding an author who I know has this long list I have to look forward to. Oh, so great. So that's um, so wonderful right now. And I'm trying to think there's something else. And then you sleep. And then I sleep. In between, (laughs) I sleep. And running Romans. Yes, running Romans and book soup and going to school. And yeah, it's a full rich life right now, right? But it's, you know, living the dream, so. You're living, the the kids say, um, you're living your best life. Living my best life. Living your best life. That's all you you can do. At work, we call it the glamorous life of a bookseller. Yeah. Um, How do you decide what to read? What are your filters? I long ago admitted to people that I look at the last word of a book to decide if I'm going to read the book. (laughs) The very last word. The very last Not word. Not page 91 or whatever no. it is. 80, I know everyone, there, lots of people have their yeah. their thing. That's my thing. It's not 100%, but it is kind of an interesting approach. Has it led you astray yet? Or have you had pretty good success with that? No, I would say it's not led me astray. Actually, it's been right on track. But I do read things beyond that. I don't always depend on that. And in general, you know, I'm really lucky we have amazing publishing reps here in Southern California who steer me in the right direction and send me really great books. I have an amazing staff. They're bookselling superheroes who are kind enough to leave gems on my desk that I may have missed. I still get to experience the discovery that you mentioned, walking through my store and stumbling upon something that I fall in love with, which is so great that I can You get to be AJ Fickery every day. Every day. Every day. So that's really lucky. I now I get to talk to my classmates, which is really interesting because it's very different. The kinds of things that they read versus the things that people in my store read. It's really interesting to kind of 
discover this whole other demographic of people yeah, who are reading sure. and what they're interested in. Um, so a lot of different ways. I'm I'm a little bit of um, I'm a little bit of a book slut, and that I will read anything and everything. I mean, I like all genres. I love crime novels. That's my guilty passion. I'm a big Michael Conley fan and Joe Ida and all those people. But I love business books. I love self-help books. I read a lot of Buddhism. I love fiction and literature. And yeah, I think the only thing I don't read is cookbooks, which apparently is your big love. Well, so the whole thing with cookbooks is mostly just to have experiences with your family at home. Oh, I love that. You know, like my yeah. kid was really into like making pasta for a little while. And the whole idea was that it's just a way to go offline and like interface mm. with something other than an iPad. I love that. And I love cooking. I would be a generalist bookstore if I could, but I was trying to hedge a little bit. Mm-hmm, that makes mm-hmm. any sense. You're, you know, you're a business person now too. Mm-hmm. So you get it. Like I was a little scared to, mm-hmm. so I tried to like refine it into this concept, but I still believe that. Um, even whether it's a cookbook or not, just any book uh, is a great relationship exchanger between you and your the younger generation. Absolutely. Um, because you're sharing a moment. It's about presence. You talked about Buddhism. Absolutely. Being in the moment rather than worrying about, you know, the 10 emails you have to write after story time or, mm-hmm. you know, all the stuff that happened in the day. Like the book like locks you in. I so think so. I, I don't think, I asked the question, do you think print will always exist? I'm not going to ask you that because I know the answer is, it's a rhetorical, <laughs> it's a rhetorical question, but, right? but the, I'm just trying to make sure, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you just want confirmation. Just want I'll confirmation. just nod. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about the experience with kids and families and books, and I would extend it to bookstores. That's one of the things I notice is the relationships that people have with their families and how that connects to their relationship with the stores. And I have customers who come in and they have these fond memories of shopping in the store when they were little with their grandparents and now they've grown up in the store and now they're bringing their children and that's one of the amazing things about Vroman's being 125 years old is that we have these generations, generations for sure. of customers. I have a customer who is turning 90 this fall and she's shopped there since she was five years old. I mean, can you imagine where else would you have that kind of continuity in your life? Nowhere. Nowhere. And so it's so meaningful to her and we are effectively her family in a lot of ways. I mean, we're her family here, her her biological family lives elsewhere, so we are her family here. And I hear that from so many people. You're her third place. We are very much her third place. And I hear that so often from people. And, you know, we do things like we print wedding invitations and we have brides who come in and tell us that we printed their grandmother's invitations. Whoa. Yeah. And it's so striking and feels so meaningful to be part of something that has really been part of people's lives for that long. It's amazing. Um, Are there any writers out there that you'd like to mention or shout out that you think should be getting more attention? Oh, that's such a good question. And I'm sure, yes. So let me think. Um, I'm terrible with names. And so I'm trying to remember, um, is it Nicole Krauss who wrote History of Love? And she has a more recent book, but she's so amazing. History of Love was a book that I... I read it and I underlined sections I loved and I dog-eared it. And then later I went back and I Xeroxed those pages and made them into their own separate book. This is a little bit neurotic even for an indie bookseller. But I just fell in love with the way she wrote and her language. And I I think she's someone we should keep watching because I think she's just doing beautiful work. And she has a newer book out that I haven't read yet because I've been waiting to treat myself to it. Um, well, that's high praise. Yeah, yeah. I, just really beautiful writer. And who else comes to mind? 
I'm going to keep thinking while you're continuing your If you want to hear something that's a borderline personality disorder, I take vigorous notes when I read. Yes. And I'm never going to look back on it again. I'm never going to remember it. I'm not going to lie. I write stuff down and I probably rarely ever go back. But what I do is I go back right after and I make haikus. Of each page. Oh my gosh! Oh, you that so you personality just, disorder. Okay, you, you, I, I make you totally a, just I make me a haiku water. because it forces me to take one page and just make it into you know five syllables, seven syllables, then five syllables. That's amazing. Yeah. How frequently are you doing this? Very. Inf- it's a. It's an unhealthy <laughs> thing. I will stay up late in front of the TV if I can't finish a page because I, to me it has to. Be, it has to be kind of like there has to be a thing to it, and it's my way of sort of like. I want to be able to remember like five things from the book, mm. you know, I want to be able to like share that or, you know, apply that knowledge, you know, I want to consume it like that. the Highlander. So I call it the haikuification of Vic's notes. Okay. Um, there's a book. I mean, that's well, you amazing. Put me in touch with the, the book proposal person because I don't know how to write those. <laughs> but, the, okay. but, the, but the idea is basically to salvage all the, I, you take, you highlight, 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 highlight. Yeah. And you write stuff down for another day, but then we just never, ever get back to it. Yeah. So. As far as other writers, I, I'm having trouble. Nothing's popping in my mind, but I, um, there's a book. Did you read All Involved? Do you know this book? Mm-mm. He's such a great writer and he just had a second book. I think it's called Safe, but All Involved is about the LA riots after Rodney King and I read Ghetto Side. Have you read Ghetto oh, Side? Such yeah. a great book. Yeah. That one is a haikus like crazy. Ghetto. Oh, I can I, only imagine. I, I I'm surprised you're not is, still doing that. No, it's an amazing book. Ghetto Side is yeah. so brilliant. We did a great window at Book Soup for that book. And I give 100% credit to my team over there, Rob, um, who's our graphic designer over there and kind of our creative director, and Dan Graham, who's our assistant promotional director. We did a window. They added a beach ball that summer every time someone was murdered in LA and wrote on the beach board the race and age and gender of the person and over the course of the summer the window just filled up with these beach balls and it was so provocative and so profound and it was a window display that you watched people walk by and stop and smile because they thought oh beach balls summer and then you would see the realization hit them and they would stop and we sold so many of ghetto side right next to that display the book that you mentioned is it's it's uh, so all involved similar? so it's it's uh it's fiction and oh, it's fiction. yeah okay. it's fiction so it, it's interesting because it does there is a relationship between the two books it's fiction but it takes place in LA and it gives the perspective of the riots from these various characters and it was one of those books that reading it, I thought I knew a lot about that time in Ellie's history and what had happened. I didn't know anything until I read that book. It's the best kind of fiction, isn't it? The kind yes. that takes you on a journey, but also kind of informs you and makes you smarter. Absolutely. And and to understand what other people's experience is like and how you have no idea right. what it's like. And you can never really and, ever have. And you can't. Yeah. And how important that realization is to any of us moving forward. <laughs> is yeah it just it makes me speechless it was just it was a really powerful powerful book do you guys play music in the store <laughs> i feel like this is a setup question if you went into my store and said what's the one thing that allison doesn't like to talk about they'll say music because it is so hard to find music that works well in a bookstore and it makes customers happy but makes 
your staff happy because they have to listen to it all the time. Right. So it's always a challenge to figure it out. And yes, we play music in all of our stores. On any given day, what's on the store soundtrack? Right now at Vroman's, we're listening to La La Land a lot. Okay. Yeah. Everyone's missing that moment in, in time and the freshness of that experience. So right now we're listening to that. The reason I started asking this is because a lot of businesses are doing Spotify playlists now. Mm-hmm. And Starbucks kind of like pioneered this. Like they used to sell CDs, yep. like, you know, like get the Starbucks experience in your kitchen table. Yep. Um, so what's going on at Romans right now? I'm just want to listen to their playlist yeah. while I'm reading the Sunday paper. Yeah. Um, and I do that with a couple of different companies, like some media companies, like they have like an office radio station. Mm-hmm. And and you learn about new music, and exactly. it keeps you connected to the brand. Exactly. You know? Yeah, we have Mood at um, Book Soup that gives us different music offerings to discover and to play in the store. And then we're about to start it at Romans because we just signed up with them. But we're in the middle of getting a new roof, and we have to wait till we get our new roof because it's all coordinated yeah, right. to put satellites be... up there. And yeah, everything's What's the very name complicated. Of the, co- the company is Mood. Mood. Yeah. And they're they're like a licensing. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then they they you know create these different channels with different music and you can decide what works in your store and yeah so we'll have a menu and it'll hopefully make us better djs do you sell music at the store we do we sell uh we sell cds and then we sell vinyl we have a great great vinyl selection vinyl still healthy and yeah alive and well yeah yeah that's been a nice little bonus the last i guess eight years now yeah. It's amazing what people don't balk at in terms of paying a premium for or like whatever list. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've had this conversation so many times with people like, you know, they'll spend seven or nine dollars for a coffee and a, and a muffin. Yeah. But if you ask them to buy a paperback at list, it's like, what? Isn't it funny? Yeah, it we all have in our sense. head. Yeah, it's funny. I'm taking this economics class right now. And they, there has to be a term at UCLA for this. They, so the, they're talking about demand curve yeah. and, you know, where on the demand curve you are in terms of how much you're willing to pay for something and customer surplus being that amount above what you're charging that people are still willing to pay and how you capture some of that. And and I'm a big believer that a lot of this is also tied to our perception of prices and what we pay for coffee. I think when you're paying, we used to pay, remember, we used to pay $1.50 for a cup of coffee. Cents, yeah. Right, exactly. But now, how much do you pay for a cup of coffee? Five, six bucks sometimes, yeah. right? So that skews your perception of what prices should be and has given, uh, you know, retail a little more leeway in terms of our pricing. So it's really interesting to watch. But, but yeah, it's people crazy. will pay for vinyl and, you know, we sell record players and... You know, again, I know there are things people can get online for cheaper, and I'm just so grateful that they're willing to pay our prices knowing that it keeps us in business and that we're adding value to their experience and they want to make sure we're there the next time they come to town. You are like an international woman of mystery. You've got so many things going on. But if (laughs) if you weren't a bookseller, what would you be doing? Oh, what a good question. I would be a detective. And okay. if anyone's listening <laughs> at the LAPD, I'm available for cold cases. You said you like crime novels. Do you read the Don Winslow books? Yes. The, yes. The, what was, not Cartel, what was the other one, the, the, the one about the police? The, the, the series? The, the um, one recently, it's, Stephen King wrote on the front of it that it's like Godfather, but for the police. Oh, I haven't read that one. Yeah. So Did you I, read it? So his funny story, I have, and it goes back to airports too. I saw it at an airport at Burbank, and I read the back of it, and I read the front of it. And I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. 
And then I was like, I started reading it while I was standing there. And then I'm like, I'm going to get it. And then I looked over in the line and was like crazy. And I had to go to my gate. So I put it down and I forgot about it. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to buy the ebook because I wanted to read it on the flight. And, um, for some reason, something happened. I got a text message. I started texting and I didn't buy it. Mm-hmm. But at home, I was looking, staring at my bookshelf. Sometimes I just stare at my bookshelf and feel, you know, very excited. <laughs> and I yeah. found the book. You have it? I bought it. I bought the hard copy. Oh. And then I went to my wife and she's like, yeah, you definitely have a problem because I literally, I, I bought it. it was, I probably grabbed it somewhere and then I put it on the shelf and you just forget. Like, does that ever happen to you where you oh. get, you like, you forget that you have it and then you get it. You Not only does that happen, but I will start reading a book and get a couple chapters in before I realize I've already, already read, read it. This. <laughs> so yeah. that is not a good sign. And I don't, I, I mean, that's partly age, but that's partly just reading. But book cons- Consuming. It's yes. a book addiction. It's consuming so much literature you forget. that it's hard to track. I know. I always think there's a uh, an app that someone could develop that's some sort of card that we can slide at the register and say, oh, I'm sorry, Vic, you already purchased this book two years ago. Oh, you wow. may want to go home and check your bookshelf. It's because I'm convinced that It'll so many people I pulled it out. Trap. I, I, what I do is I'll pull out the book and I'll put it in front of me, like on our coffee table. Mm-hmm. And so it's staring at me. Yeah. But if I don't get to it fast enough, then my son will use it as a Lego ramp, you know, <laughs> but uh, so now it's, now the book is, the Don Winslow book is back on the shelf, but That's so funny. it's crazy. It's like a very like full circle thing. Cause I yeah. fell in love with it all over again. Yeah. And I didn't know I had it. No, uh, definitely Don Winslow, Michael Conley, Robert Cry. Um, I'm trying to think some of the others. Well, Do you watch the Bosch series on... No, I have taken a very firm position on this, though my staff has been trying to convince me lately that I'm just wrong and I need to try it, that it's really brilliant and it really is. well not, done. It's not the book, yeah, um, but it's it's pretty damn close. I'm struggling because, yeah. you know, you have a vision of you have these a vision characters, of who he is. Yeah. and then I saw him, and he's a great actor, yeah. but it wasn't quite what I envisioned. So, it didn't register for yeah, me either. And yeah, and so I'm a little bit resistant, but from everything I hear, it's worth it. But the story's there. I, I'm with you. The first season, my, my wife's really into it, but I was kind of like, he's not Bosch. Right. But he kind of like works his way into Bosch. Like, yeah. you know, but it's, it wasn't as obvious as like Don Draper or. Yeah, you know, something like that. It wasn't just like. Yeah, I'm honestly kind of saving it for the day that Michael Conley stops writing because I dread that day. And that way I'll have something to fall to, back to, on. Like, yeah, to lean you on. You know, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I would be a detective. And in some ways, sometimes I feel like my, do- my, my job is a little bit of a detective job to begin with because you have to kind of always be digging for <laughs> ways to improve the bottom line and places to find to cut costs and ideas and partnerships and always be kind of looking for something and have your ear to the ground yeah and so there there is some sort of similar uh experience that plays to that part of my makeup that likes to investigate things well also detectives always have the greatest stories right there you go right they're just chock full of it that's it so there's definitely a connection um you get to do this question twice because uh you represent pasadena and you represent los angeles oh great so complete the sentence I guess we'll start with Pasadena. Okay. Pasadena is. Pasadena is surprising. Los Angeles is. So I have to, I have to clarify there, and I'm going to go with West Hollywood. Okay. Um, West Hollywood is. Magical. A um, couple more. What book have you recommended the most over the years to people? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, the book I've recommended the most, I have a handful that are sure. kind of 
my go-tos for recommending books. I'm a huge Murakami fan, so Wind Up Bird Chronicle is one of my all-time favorite books, and I love introducing people to that world and to him, and if they love it, then I know they're going to love all the other ones, and they have all of that to look forward to, so I love that. There's a great book called The Fig Eater that I love recommending to people because it's usually not on their radar. The book is probably 20 years old now. I'm trying to remember when it was written. But it is literary fiction, and it is a detective story. It's set in Vienna at turn of the century, around 1900, and a woman's body is found, and all they know about her death is that she ate a particular kind of fig within 24 hours, and that fig is not found in that region. That's all they know. So the story is the detective's journey to try to figure out what happened to this young woman, but unbeknownst to him, his wife is on her own parallel journey trying to understand what this woman's life was like and seeing herself reflected in this young woman. And it's just this really well-crafted, interesting, surprising book that not a lot of people know about. So I love introducing people to that. Um, I love Smell a Sense of Snow for many of the same reasons, which is one of my favorites. And I'm pretty committed to making sure that everyone has read The Great Gatsby. I know that that seems a little bit cliche almost for a bookseller to recommend The Great Gatsby, but I still think that it's such a gem of a novel. The language. Yeah, the language and the um, efficiency of it, of the storytelling. And one That's of a my, good way to describe it. You know, and yeah. one of my all-time favorite days of my life was a day spent at Red Cat Theater, downtown Los Angeles, with... A theater group that did an all-day performance of The Great Gatsby, and it was just a reading of The Great Gatsby. They didn't actually really perform it. They just read it all day long, and I think there were four intermissions. I had to take the day off work. Like, it was kind of incredible, but it was so amazing and such a different relationship with the book, and I already loved it, but going through that experience, I really fell in love all over again with the language and just how perfect that book is in so many ways. Excellent. Love it. And if I had a pen, I'd be writing all this down. <laughs> and uh, making a haiku. Finally, what's your favorite meal? My favorite my favorite meal is, you know, it, my ideal meal is has everything to do with my husband's culinary abilities. And I can still remember one of my favorite meals was coming home from actually the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, which is an amazing weekend for a bookseller in Los Angeles and also completely exhausting. So I came home pretty much depleted and he had prepared this meal and this will continue to be my favorite meal going forward. And he knows this, but it was kind of this tapas style, lots of little bits and pieces of my favorite foods. So, you know, a little bit of, you know, stir-fried tofu with something sprinkled over it and uh, a little bit of hummus with another little treat and just all these little treats that he had prepared. And that's, I'm kind of a grazer, kind of a a nibbler kind of person more than like a big full-on meal. So, and I, I don't eat meat and I like unusual foods. And so being able to look at a lot of variety and kind of pick and choose and taste is kind of my favorite. Awesome. Allison, you're amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for doing this series. And I'm Vic Singh, and you've been listening to Book Stories. Book Stories is produced by Alternate Thursdays in Los Angeles. <laughs>